Welcome, everybody, to Tokens of Wisdom. I'm your host, Dave Rothschild, a partner at Cole Freeman & Mallon, a boutique law firm based in San Francisco with one of the leading private fund practices on the West Coast. Before we dive into the episode, like always, please listen to the disclaimer at the end of the show. Nothing I say here is legal investment or tax advice. Today, we are talking all about custody, or as the SEC likes to call it now, safeguarding. So to give you a bit of background, the Custody Rule is an Advisors Act rule that was initially adopted in 1962. It's been updated and amended a few times over the years, most recently in 2009. Maybe a couple things have changed since then? Question mark? The custody rule applies to registered investment advisors that have custody of client assets. So first thing to keep in mind is it does not apply to exempt reporting advisors, at least not SEC exempt reporting advisors. If you're an exempt advisor with the SEC, you are not subject to the custody rule. So what is custody? Well, it's got a long and technical definition, but for our purposes, since we're talking all about funds here, all you need to know is that the general partner of a limited partnership or the managing member of an LLC is always deemed to have custody of the partner partnership or LLC's assets. This actually makes a lot of sense. The general partner of a limited partnership has latent management authority over the partnership, so it could direct whatever custodian is holding the actual assets to move those assets into another account without the partnership knowing it's in charge of the partnership, and so it is deemed to have custody. So the custody rule applies to RIAs that have custody of client assets. What exactly does the custody rule require? Well, there are a bunch of different prongs, but for our purposes, we're just going to talk about the main one because this is what trips up digital asset managers most frequently. So if you are subject to the custody rule, you are required to keep client funds and securities with a qualified custodian at all times. So what are client funds and securities? Well, funds is money. Securities are securities. What is a qualified custodian? It's generally a bank, a registered broker dealer, state chartered trust companies, certain foreign financial institutions, and futures commissions merchants. Essentially, qualified custodians are large market participants that are ordinarily in the business of custodying assets for clients and that are subject to regular government regulation, jurisdiction, examination, etc. Since the birth of crypto as an asset class, there has been a lack of clarity over how digital assets fit into the custody rule. There's ambiguity on all sides. First and foremost, are digital assets, quote, funds or securities, unquote. As we've discussed ad nauseum on this show, some people take the position that crypto assets are not securities at all. As we've discussed on this show, I think that is a very bad idea. If you want to understand why it's a bad idea, just talk to Gary Gensler or read any of the SEC's recent releases talking about crypto, digital assets. Pretty clear they think that digital assets are securities. So a little bit of ambiguity about whether the custody rule applies to digital assets. In reality, it probably does. Second ambiguity, are there any qualified custodians that can hold digital assets? Well, historically, there weren't. And this was a real problem in the beginning of the asset class and something that some of the first registered investment advisors providing services related to digital assets had to contend with. For a long time, there just wasn't an entity that met the definition of a qualified custodian that would hold digital assets. You couldn't store your Bitcoin at Chase, for example. In recent years, more and more companies and providers have registered in some capacity that makes them a qualified custodian. Either they've gotten a federal charter to be a bank, aka Anchorage Digital Bank, or they are state-level trust companies, state-chartered trust companies like Coinbase Custody, 
et cetera. There's several others. One point I'll emphasize here is that Coinbase Custody is not the same entity as Coinbase, where you go to actually trade digital assets. So do qualified custodians exist in the digital asset space? Today they do, but historically they did not. And even the ones that exist today can only hold a limited number of actual digital assets. If you have a broad digital asset investment portfolio, it's unlikely that you can store all of those assets at qualified custodians. Which brings me to the next point. Is it possible to keep all of your digital assets at a qualified custodian at all times? Well, like I said, the answer is no. It's not possible if you have a broad investment portfolio. It might be possible if you're only holding a handful of digital assets. But then when you want to go trade them, you're almost inevitably going to have to move them off of the qualified custodian in order to trade them. Coinbase custody might be a qualified custodian holding your assets, but when you move them over to Coinbase to actually transact in them, you are moving them away from the qualified custodian and you are no longer in compliance with the custody rule. What this means is that registered investment advisors in the digital asset space, if they have custody, cannot comply with the custody rule at all times. Even if they could, there are many managers I've spoken to who genuinely believe that their own proprietary custody solutions better safeguard these assets than some qualified custodians could. If you genuinely believe that, now you're running into some friction between an advisor's fiduciary duty to its clients to do what it thinks is in its client's best interest and its regulatory obligation to comply with the custody rule. The best solution has been for registered investment advisors to design comprehensive policies and procedures to comply with the spirit of the custody rule, safeguarding client assets to the greatest extent possible. And up until even today, the SEC has taken a relatively hands-off approach when they've examined registered investment advisors on this issue. There are several registered investment advisors operating in the digital asset space, yet to my knowledge, there have been zero enforcement actions brought against registered investment advisors for failure to comply with the custody rule on these facts. That appears to be ending. Why do I think that appears? Years to be ending? Three specific reasons. One, the current SEC, after the FTX debacle and the various other blowups we've witnessed over the last year, is getting more aggressive with digital asset enforcement actions generally. Number two, anecdotally, we've seen an uptick in custody-specific SEC inquiries. It's at least theoretically possible that another shoe is about to drop and enforcement actions are going to start coming. And number three, on February 15th, with much fanfare, the SEC released a new proposal to replace the custody rule I just described with a new rule that they're calling the safeguarding rule. Now, why'd they have to go and change the name of the rule from custody rule to safeguarding rule? I have no idea and I don't really care. What I care about is what this new proposal says. Now, I want to stress this is only a proposal right now. What happens next is the public has a chance to submit comments on the text of the new proposal. From there, hopefully the SEC will digest some of those comments and update the proposed rule before the commissioners have to vote again on the updated proposal. Only if the commissioners vote to approve the updated proposal will it become a final rule. So there's a ways to go before that happens. The new proposal has some good aspects and it has some less good aspects for the asset class. And since I'm such a glass half full kind of guy, we're going to start with the good news. Number one, this is actual rulemaking. The SEC proposes a rule it thinks is reasonably designed to achieve a legitimate policy goal. The public gets a chance to comment on it. The proposal is updated and then it becomes a rule. This is the opposite of regulation by enforcement, right? It's an actual rulemaking proposal. There's going to be a comment period. People are going to get a chance to weigh in. Maybe 
maybe some changes will be made before the rule goes into effect. Which gets us to the less good news. The proposal, in my humble opinion, is not conducive to the short-term growth of digital assets as an asset class. Let's go through the ambiguities we ticked off earlier one by one, and we'll talk about how the new proposal eliminates the ambiguity. Number one, are digital assets funds or securities? Well, it doesn't matter anymore. That ambiguity is gone because the new safeguarding rule will apply to all assets over which an investment advisor has custody for clients. If they're in a client asset, then they're subject to the rule. Number two, do qualified custodians exist in the digital asset space? A piece of good news here, nothing's really changing with respect to the broad definition of qualified custodian. There was some fear among market participants that the SEC might do away with the state chartered trust company as a prong of the qualified custodian definition. It did not do that. Number three, can you keep digital assets at a qualified custodian at all times? No, you cannot. It is very clear from the SEC's commentary around the proposal that as soon as you take assets out of a qualified custodian, put them on an exchange to trade them, you are going to be out of compliance with the new safeguarding rule if implemented in its current form. Side note, the SEC also went out of its way to say that current practices violate the current custody rule. The proposal also makes very clear that exchanges are not qualified custodians unless they meet one of the aforementioned qualified custodian prongs. That's not surprising, but it does reinforce the fact that you really can't trade these assets if you're a registered investment advisor and you're complying with this new rule, again, as proposed. And then there's a whole lot more. I think one of the most troubling pieces of this new rule is that it imposes an obligation on registered investment advisors to enter into a written agreement with each qualified custodian that's custodying client assets on their behalf. That's not the way it works today. Today, the custodial agreement is between the client and the custodian. So requiring that the investment advisor enter into agreements with all of these custodians is imposing a relatively high burden on registered investment advisors. It's a whole new set of agreements that they have to negotiate with every custodian that might hold assets for their clients. As part of that agreement, the advisor needs to obtain reasonable assurance that the custodian will do a whole bunch of things. So this piece of the new rule is the SEC almost indirectly attempting to regulate the relationship between custodian and client. And the way they're doing that, since they don't have jurisdiction over that relationship directly, is imposing a side requirement that an advisor interject themselves into that custodian relationship and demand certain terms from the custodian in these agreements. This written agreement has to make sure that the custodian will indemnify the client for losses from its own negligence. Important distinction for you lawyers listening, this is not gross negligence, this is negligence. And custodians need to have sufficient insurance to cover those potential losses. The custodian needs to obtain a written internal control report from a PCAOB registered accountant and provide it to the clients and the advisor. The custodian needs to send account statements at least quarterly to clients. The custodian needs to segregate client assets from its own proprietary assets. All of these requirements sound on their face like they make a lot of sense. The negligence standard instead of gross negligence. The SEC and the proposal went out of their way to point out that certain clients, those with enough market power, can demand that negligence standard in their existing custody relationships, and it's often the smaller clients who get stuck with a gross negligence standard. Those smaller clients don't have the market power to negotiate for a simple negligence standard, and so they're left with a less favorable liability standard in their custody arrangements. This may well be true, but the flip side of that coin is that custodians are generating significant revenue from larger clients, and they're willing to give a little more in exchange for the additional revenue. It's relatively easy to imagine a world in which, A, certain custodians get out of the business of providing custody solutions to those retail clients, in which case those clients are losing 
losing a custodian option, or B, they're just going to pass along the costs of this increased risk to the clients. So clients are going to end up paying more. Maybe it's worth it, maybe it's not, but I think it's likely that custody will become pricier as a result of this change. I think a second piece of this that is completely ignored, in the proposal at least, is the fact that smaller advisors might have a hard time getting custodians to agree to do business with them for the same reasons, right? They're going to generate less revenue from these smaller advisors. They're going to be required by these advisors to have agreements that impose a simple negligence standard. They're going to be required to carry additional insurance. They're going to be required to get these internal control reports, and it might not be worth it for them to do business with smaller advisors. The SEC was very mindful of the fact that smaller clients might have a hard time negotiating for these protections on their own, but they seem to ignore the fact that smaller advisors might have that same difficulty. This new proposal, to me, also signals an end to the hands-off as long as you're being serious about safeguarding era. Like we talked about up top, there's been a dearth of enforcement actions for custody rule violations among digital asset managers to date. But the SEC's commentary around the proposal itself takes pains to emphasize that the SEC thinks that many investment advisors, current investment advisory practices in the digital asset space are violating the custody rule. And so it wouldn't be terribly surprising, again, given the anecdotal evidence that I've seen of an uptick in inquiries around custody practices if the SEC was laying the groundwork for bringing enforcement actions in the short term before this proposal progresses further. Even if the safeguarding rule goes into effect as currently proposed, compliance will not be required for at least one year for large advisors and 18 months for smaller advisors. That might sound like a long time, but given all the redocumenting of custody relationships and different provisions that need to go into these agreements, I think that the compliance with this new rule is actually going to take a long time. In other contexts, I've seen ISDA and prime brokerage agreement negotiations drag on for a year in traditional finance. And I can't imagine that this is going to be something that is quickly accepted as industry standard by various market participants. Taking a step back and looking at the proposal holistically, it feels to me like an attempt to throw cold water on this asset class. And I'm hardly alone in so thinking. SEC Commissioner Hester Pierce, the only dissenting vote against the proposal, said the following in relation to the proposal's commentary about how existing industry practices violate the current custody rule. Quote, such sweeping statements in a rule proposal seem designed for immediate effect. A function proposing releases should not play. These statements encourage investment advisors to back away immediately from advising their clients with respect to crypto, unquote. Similarly, SEC Commissioner Mark Uyeda, who voted to advance the proposal partially on process grounds, commending the commission for running an actual rulemaking process as opposed to regulation by enforcement, nonetheless took issue with much of the proposal's specifics. He said, among other things, quote, this approach to custody appears to mask a policy decision to block access to crypto as an asset class. It deviates from the commission's long-standing position of neutrality on the merits of investments, unquote. We'll see how the process shakes out in the end and what the contours of the final rules say, but managers in the space can at least take some comfort that we're finally seeing actual rulemaking specific to digital assets. Well, now that all that boring regulatory analysis is out of the way, it's time for the part you've all been waiting for. The legal disclaimer. In this show, I describe laws and regulations from a 10,000-foot view. And while this should be obvious to most, I need to say it nonetheless. This show is for informational purposes only. And nothing said here constitutes legal, investment, or tax advice. If you're thinking about starting a fund or you're curious about what's involved, this show is a good resource as you explore your options. But if you're going to pull the trigger and launch a fund, please engage an attorney to assist you. Thanks for listening to Tokens of Wisdom with Dave Rothschild. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like, follow, and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends about us. 